0: We're on.
1: Hello, everyone. Ben said I should bring more energy. So, hello, everyone.
0: You're listening to the Fight for Together podcast. Dude, I just tried lighting my cigar and I didn't even cut it yet. (laughs) I was all discombobulated by...
1: Cigar fail. By my energy?
0: By your energy.
1: This... The cigar is so big, it doesn't even fit over this guy. I know.
0: These are, man, in a way, we should not be smoking cigars this big right now. But I feel like you guys can handle it. I think these are 60 millimeter Nub Connecticut's.
1: Just because we won't finish them.
0: Yeah, and it's like, it's almost 11 o'clock at night.
1: Well, we're running the midnight oil, so you do what you got to do.
0: Burning the midnight oil is a phrase, which is double appropriate, given that we're lighting cigars. That's true. Please hold. Um, Welcome to episode 37 of the podcast. Hang on. Mm.
1: Ben did a lot of research for this podcast, and I said... I feel like we should be getting paid for this.
0: You know, I'm doing it just out of the kindness of my heart. You know what kind of sucks though? Actually, like half the research I did, I don't even think we're going to be using for a podcast because I don't think it was a good enough idea, but that's okay. We have an episode for you today that I'm excited about. Um, where do we start? A lot of stuff here. We got some news. We got some phone calls. We got some chair. Let's start off with the chair contributions.
1: I'm excited about this.
0: Okay, so basically this is the story for those of you guys that are new around here. We have this ghetto podcast setup. If you're watching a video, you see this is our basement. This is a, an IKEA counter that I, I cut to build a table with that we've had for close to fifteen years. I bought this $100 mixing board that I don't really know how to use, but somehow it works. We have these microphones, which I think produce good sound, but I don't really know how to use anything. And then we have these like lame-ass wooden stools that I just like found around the house.
1: I and think we'll... they were your parents. Is that
0: where they came from?
1: Yeah, I think so.
0: Let me show you one. Here, I'm just going to get up here for a second and show you guys this thing, you can see this. I mean, it's high quality. It's a uh, one, two, three, four, 12, 13 pieces of wood. Very simple. It looks like a wooden pizza that I just placed my ass on <laughs> for approximately an hour and a half once a week. But at the end of every episode, when I get up, it hurts.
1: For me it mostly hurts my feet. Like my I feel like all the blood is like rushing down and like
0: your feet. Wow. Yeah. Know. And my idea right now is not to try and monetize these podcasts at all for the first 100 episodes for numerous reasons. Part of it's to be a nice guy, but nah, well, let's who are we kidding? <laughs> That's not the real reason. Mm -hmm. The real reason is I think it's actually distracting to be thinking about making money and just trying to like make stuff we care about and cover topics that we think are important. So there is that. The second is, is I think a lot of people, they start a business and they're like, I should be getting paid when really I didn't go to school for how to podcast, which is makes sense because there's no podcasting school. But the second best thing is to do a podcasting apprenticeship or at least get good enough at it so that you have a product that's, like, worth paying for. And, you know, I think I I see a lot of people that are like, hey, I'm giving you my voice. Isn't that enough? Like, you should pay me. And that's nice, but I kind of expect that we have to learn this skill and this talent. Um, before we start really selling it as a product or at least asking for money or contributions from people, like we got to put in our sweat equity first before we ask you to put in yours, you know, like we're not just gonna be like, Hey guys, we got this idea. Give us money basically, which is, I think what happens when you haven't put the work in. So I want to put our work in and then we're going to figure out how to monetize this somehow. I don't know how people ask for good sponsors and, uh, you know, what? Do you, like advertising. I hate that. We might end up doing that. There's this Patreon model. You know, we'll see. We'll cross that bridge when we get there. But anyways, in the back of my head, I'm thinking, we'll do that after 100 episodes. And we're at episode...
1: 37.
0: 37. So we're about a third of the way there. And we've learned a ton. But we're still learning. Yeah.
1: yeah. So we
0: got time for that. But in the meantime, our asses is still hurt. And we thought, wouldn't it be cool if you guys helped us out with chairs now there's no guilt no obligation um and it's just not one of those things that we would prioritize like i don't mind my ass hurting i'd rather have my ass hurt than lay down good cash for a chair right now but if you guys were like hey you know what even though you guys are learning we like you and we we want to let you know that we
1: believe in you
0: hmm <laughs> Then this is a really good cigar right now. It is. We will gladly accept the money for chairs. So that's where we're at. So we have a chair fund. <clears throat> and, and people
1: have been giving.
0: And the links are in the description of everything. Basically you can like do PayPal or Venmo or something like that. And boy have we got some news for you. Um first off, someone and and I feel really bad about this, but this is just the internet. I don't know if this is their name or their screen name because I've never seen a name like this and I do not know how to pronounce it. But it's Una Eglite.
1: Or Eglite. <laughs> I don't know.
0: Eglite. Yeah, maybe you right. But the name is U N A E G L I T E. Sent us $4 and said thank you for the podcast. You hear that? That's the $4. Una, you are welcome. And the $4 goes in the chair fund jar. Then,
1: can we have a clap? What's the, mm. what's the clap? Yes,
0: let's, good call. Let's find that.
1: There it is.
0: That's a long one. I like that. Our asses, thank you. <laughs> then out of nowhere comes this message. Hey, FFT, the chair fund lives on. I figure if I'm contributing an amount based on hours watched, It probably comes to a penny per minute. Really enjoy your family, philosophy, and content. From Keith, AKA YouTube screen name Denali96, with a contribution of one hundred dollars.
1: Wow. Putting that in the jar.
0: Money goes in the jar. Thank you guys so much for those that contributed in the past and for you too. Mm -hmm. Heath and Una, this week, really appreciate it. Uh, Thank you so much. Um, It's nice to know that people are out there listening. Uh, I mean, and not just the money, but even like the messages. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, our YouTube channel is getting to a size where it's difficult to read every comment. I think I still might. We certainly don't respond to all of them. But the podcast is small, and I really like that, where we read every piece of feedback. We listen to every message right now. Yeah. And we really want to hear your stories, and we want to know that it's uh, helping people, or if it's not, how we can make it better. So um, that's nice. Um, okay. We got a comment from last week that I thought you could read. This was on YouTube, and we can just do not that. Yeah. But you can do that.
1: This is from Mariah. I'm 10 minutes in, and as I'm listening to Cammie explain her background, I find her words resonating with me. I just recently told my husband that we will not be raising our daughter within the bounds of purity culture. I don't think parents of my generation... That had resources like I Kiss Dating Goodbye and Christian Fiction that romanticized purity before marriage and sex after marriage realize how damaging it has been. I still have a hard time being sexual within the bounds of marriage. I grew up feeling shameful about my body. I knew my hips, butt, and thighs in particular was the most sensual parts of my body. And I felt it was important to hide that part of me in fear of causing my brethren to stumble. You are to control your own thoughts about anything sexual lest you commit adultery. You are not safe in your own head. It screwed me up. I really don't think people understand why women and men, it can be just as impactful on them, are speaking out against it. We are viewed as harlots and Jezebels questioning salvation and your walk with the the Lord. It's so damaging on all sides. Wow. Wow. Yeah, thank you for sharing this, Mariah.
0: Yeah, it's like, what's she saying? It sounds like she's going through this anyways. Really, Because what I was wondering was like, oh, are we causing this? Or are we just like another voice? Not that it matters in a huge way. But, I mean, it's a privilege just to be a part of this process with anyone. Yeah. And really, in a way, have people... Um, Part of our process, because when we first started walking away from some of our old beliefs, I think we thought we were crazy.
1: Yeah. Or something really bad was going to happen.
0: And like this is something I'm glad this um, comment came up because I was um, forgot to mention this last week when we were talking about purity culture. And Cammy did this book review on this book, Pure, and it was like talking about sexual shame and religion and whatnot if you weren't here last week. And um, one of the points I meant to make was that growing up, we heard a lot about the cost of sex before marriage. Like you could get pregnant, you can get diseases. And I actually heard this quote this week that said something like, um, sex ed talking about STDs would be like wood woodshop the olive of woodchop class being talking about getting your finger t- chopped off with a table saw. Mm. Like it's a part of sex is abstinence or sorry, um, pregnancy or like unwanted pregnancies or
1: or disease,
0: disease. but that's not what sex is. Um, just fact, like woodchop. That's such
1: a small part yeah. of
0: it. Which actually is not the point I was going to make. That was just a side point that I remembered. But the point I was going to make, was that we spent so much time talking about the negative aspects that no one ever realized what the negative aspects of using shame to manipulate people to stay away from those negative aspects were. So here we have a whole generation of a lot of folks that probably maybe had less premarital sex and maybe had less STDs, I don't know, but now the cost of this shame manipulation, um, pressure
1: it's it's taking a toll on their sexuality so if they are married or even if they're not but they're sexual with someone else they're like having a really hard time being able to be fulfilled in that
0: and i'm just kind of under the impression that um this way isn't better than whatever the alternative would have been and i haven't lived both worlds Mm -hmm. but you know, it seems like the the stories are just starting to come out now, really in the last five years, of how bad that methodology, how, how much it really kind of fucked people up. Yeah. <clears throat> and it's not sounding good.
1: Yeah. Yeah, reading that book, for me, helped me realize that I wasn't crazy and that there are countless stories of people in – these religious environments, that they grow up in these religious environments and they're pretty they're scarred because of it because of the messages that they're being told about their sexuality
0: Alright It is time for the news <laughs> Wow That was nice. unexpected A little <laughs> laser gun there We got three articles we're going to go through today and before we go through the phone calls. We don't have a whole other topic, but these news articles. I saw this one, and I thought this is really fun to cover. Okay, this is from Newsweek. And the title is, I found my birth family, and it turns out I'd known them all along. Okay? wow. So this writer for Newsweek, his name's David. I'm going to read some of this article. My daughter had befriended a kind family physician four summers ago at a boys' camp in the hills of North Alabama, He was the camp doctor, and she was a staff member. Okay, so he's talking about his daughter and this doctor. um, Working as a college student during the break to keep the director's children. So his daughter is working at this camp. They had grown close, and when she got quite sick, he had visited her in the infirmary, kneeling his tall frame down and gently holding her long hair as she vomited. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: She invited him to her wedding. So now this this author, uh, David, his daughter is inviting...
1: the physician physician to to her her wedding
0: wedding last year in Mississippi as a gesture. He surprised us and came as a gesture, driving five hours from Louisiana with his wife and six children along. Walking my daughter down the aisle that wedding day, I saw the doctor and his family filling half a pew in the church, all smiling broadly. So this physician drives five hours to show up to this wedding Mm -hmm. of this girl
1: mm-hmm.
0: and then it turns out that david and this physician are half brothers
1: oh my gosh
0: so it was actually like he was going to his own family's wedding
1: so it was her uncle mm-hmm. it was her half uncle mm-hmm. that was taking care of her yes oh
0: so i mean and it gets kind of crazy because david the author. The dad had, for 29 years, he had been searching for his birth father and family. Hmm. And they found out later that for two decades, their kind of lives had been run in parallel with familiar friends and interests, and they had no idea. And the reason why he had looked for his birth father was because his, uh, the dad that adopted him whatever that's called dad I guess um, said like DNA is really important and you're a really unique guy and no matter how we raise you like your DNA is going to make you a certain way so if you want to understand hmm. who you really are like find
1: we, your bio find your family find out
0: about your biology at least yeah and that'll give you some of the biggest clues because parenting our parenting only, only goes so far
1: hmm wow that's very insightful of the dad
0: so anyways when he finally took this dna test and it came out that this name like ruthie lindsey came up and it didn't have a picture or anything and it just gave this name and his daughter is like there and says i follow that girl on instagram <laughs> that is like a relative of theirs and then, like, to make matters worse, I follow these people on Instagram, too. I don't fully get it. It's this Jedediah Jenkins character, and I, I just know, I like I follow, I'm looking at this article, and I follow these people. Really? Yeah, or at least I did. And then it kind of talks about their reunion. I mean, they're, they're in their 50s and 40s, and, and now they're like realizing all this overlap that they have.
1: In their past.
0: In their past, but in their present. You know, mm. they act these certain ways. And this reminds me of mm. a story with my friend Sonny um, from years ago when he, like, what, he was he 35? And he did a DNA test. Mm-hmm. And he was told that his dad was a doctor. Mm-hmm. Like, he was the product of a one-night stand. And his mom was this kind of, like, poor... Mexican lady in LA that had slept with a rich doctor one night, and then Mm -hmm. I was like peace out. Yeah, and then she got pregnant That's that was a story he was told right so track a dude down from one night in LA 35 years ago Not gonna happen right so but he took this DNA test Comes back that there's this guy in LA. He was in LA and he was actually a rich lawyer not a doctor but after getting this guy to take a DNA test, which seems like a miracle, so he basically Sonny calls up who is his potential dad and says, hey, by the way, I think I might be your son. Mm. Which, imagine that phone call. I mean, 30, yeah. imagine a meet a kid of yours that's 35 years old that you didn't even know you had. Because, you know... You have sex with a girl, and then you walk away, and you never think twice about it, Mm -hmm. I guess. Is that how that goes?
1: For a lot of people. I think his dad had an incredible response, because he agreed to take the test.
0: So they meet on this Thanksgiving, and then they show up, and Sonny and his dad are wearing the same jacket. (laughs) And a half-brother shows up, and Sonny and his half-brother are wearing the same pair of shoes. First time they ever met in their life. Yeah, it's crazy. So DNA is powerful. it is. I guess.
1: I guess.
0: (laughs) I mean I I know that there's people that aren't I think non DNA is powerful too, like adopting kids. Like you know, but that doesn't erase the fact that there's something to this whole DNA thing. Yeah. right. anything else you want to say about that? Fun little heartwarming story, I thought. Nope.
1: Let's move on.
0: Okay, this is gonna get dark. Oh. So we're,
1: we're taking a turn.
0: Taking a do turn. Do we
1: have a, a sound effect for for that?
0: We can find one. There's this. Uh, what does this do? It's kind of weird. A little sci-fi. I like that one. That's kind of dark. Okay. Um. This headline. This is from. Where is this from? I don't even know anymore. Oh, I had it on this website. Not that we'll post links to all these below, but this is from the Daily Mail.
1: Oh, yeah. this is dark. I know what this
0: is about. Yeah, headline.
1: Well, oh, that- this is kind of sad. I think. Yeah. Okay. Anyways, let's get into it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Do you want to say anything else? Let's see. Swipe what other trailer. What
1: other feeling do I have? No.
0: Okay. The MLK tapes secret FBI recordings accused Martin Luther King Jr. of watching and laughing as a pastor raped a woman having 40 extramarital affairs and they are under lock in a U.S. archive.
1: Wait, MLK having 40, not the pastor that raped? Okay.
0: Yeah. So he didn't rape someone, but he observed this rape, supposedly, and he had 40 affairs.
1: Observed it like a video? No. Oh. Oh. Oh, in real life.
0: He was like there, kind of like cheering the dude on.
1: Oh, I didn't know about that.
0: So, um, and supposedly fathered a child outside of what was known, um, so this is from this article. The civil rights hero was also heard allegedly joking he was the founder of the International Association for the Advancement of Pussy Eaters on an agency recording that was obtained by bugging his room, according to the sensational claims made by bi- biographer David Garrow, a Pulitzer Prize-winning author and biographer of MLK. So basically, the I think it's the CIA or FBI. I'm not sure who it is. Like tapped all these hotel rooms, like. With this whole like Hoover anti communist stuff. It's kind of crazy. So they had like all these like all hotel rooms. No, like ones yeah. for people that they were like tracking. And he was under suspicion for being a communist. Oh. For whatever reason. Okay. This is back when it was like witch hunt for communism. Oh, okay. Um, so along with many U.S. civil figures King was subject to an FBI campaign of surveillance ordered by J. Edgar Hoover in an effort to undermine his power amid fears he could have links to the Communist Party the FBI surveillance tapes detailing his indiscretions are being held in a vault at the U.S. National Archives and are not due for release until 2027 but David Garrow a biographer of King who won a Pulitzer Prize for his 1987 book Bearing the Cross about the Baptist minister has unearthed the FBI summaries of the various incidents.
1: Wait, how did he do that if they were supposed to be under lock and key? Tell I don't know.
0: The, the tapes are under lock and key, I think. Oh. But the summaries that the FBI wrote about them, oh. maybe those are more available. Okay. Um, King's philandering has long been suspected. However, Garrow, who spent several months digging through the archive material, said he had no idea of the scale or the ugliness of it and his apparent indifference to rape until he saw the files. So then... um, And then there was, like, all this stuff where, like, basically... Who was it? I forget already. FBI, CIA, one of those things. They were, like, blackmailing King when he was alive and saying, like, you should commit suicide because of what we know. Otherwise, we're gonna... Oh,
1: dang. That's
0: Which evidently never came to fruition, but... But so, we don't
1: we don't know if it would have because he got murdered or, yeah,
0: yeah, who knows? Um, so, to just further make this story slightly more interesting, marking the anniversary of Dr. King's assassination last year, President Donald Trump issued a proclamation in honor of Dr. King saying, in remembrance of his profound and inspirational virtues, we look to do as Dr. King did while this world was privileged enough to have him still. So basically, like... um, Oh, man, you know what I meant to do? Dang it. Can you talk about this while I find this thing? Because this was posted by a Facebook friend of mine, and I really want to pull up his commentary on this because that was what i found the most fascinating about this whole topic so cammy your feedback please okay
1: my feedback well i think it's it's it definitely is interesting <laughs> to hear this because i know i revered the guy i mean he did he did do some incredible things but it does it goes to show you that everyone has their dark or shadow side of stuff and knowing that he was a minister that f- even further makes me not surprised by this kind of stuff because he had he had power to a certain degree even though I know back in that day he had less because of the color of his skin but he still had power and I don't know. I think.
0: I feel like you should explain maybe like why you're not surprised. Yeah, I'm about to. Okay.
1: Because I think with pastors and ministers and priests and all of that, there's a certain amount of repression of your sexuality that you are forced to do in order to maintain your position and to maintain a certain reputation. You're supposed to be a, like okay, you can have sex with your wife maybe. Yeah, that's fine. But don't talk about it and don't talk about your sexuality and don't exper- you know, you can't experiment. That's all like totally. And probably back in that those days in the 60s, 50s and 60s, that was frowned upon by anyone but definitely by a minister. That's... To me, I think that's... And anyways, I think when you repress that stuff... Now, I'm not making excuses for him. But I know, like, when you repress stuff, it actually just makes it more intense and more powerful.
0: Hmm. So, Martin Luther King was a hero of mine. Um, I mean, I've been really fascinated by... Specifically... His civil disobedience and his kind of like he had this very strong like he was influenced by Thoreau who wrote the essay Civil Disobedience, which is based uh, loosely on some of Jesus' turn the other cheek sermon on the mount stuff, which isn't um, so much uh, absorbing pain. I think it is is like an actual a playbook for social change. Um, I mean, maybe it's both, but this this essay by Thoreau became the basis for some of Martin Luther King and Gandhi's like actions and super smart, smart guys, super um, like I don't know what to call it. I mean, like cutting edge would be like an understatement in that. You know, they knew you couldn't just fight fire with fire. Like you had to actually expose the evil of inequality and slavery for what it was. And in order to do that, you couldn't just, you know, be a jerk back. You know, you had to kind of like, I don't know.
1: Well, I think he I think the turning the other cheek mentality is showing another way to be able to get to have, to get change instead of violence, which is the common way, you show another way.
0: Yeah. So now, in this kind of like cancel culture Me Too movement, where you have I can't even, I mean, you have Weinstein, you have uh, Louis C.K. You have, I mean, probably literally hundreds of names of, let's just say predominantly white dudes, but it's not because you have Bill Cosby and, and Michael Jackson and all these people where their sexual kind of more a fuller picture of the story has come out. And I'm just going to assume these stories are true in a way. I don't really care if they are or not. Um, and I'll explain why, because so I'm not going to like get into like debating or finding out the true sources or whatever, but let's assume it's true for the sake of this discussion, at least some of the things. And so you have these people that are now saying, Basically, let's take Louis C.K. as an example, who's one of my favorite comedians, funny as hell. He, if I, you find out he's, I forget what he was doing, masturbating in front of women, or he uses position and pressured people. Um, he didn't rape anyone or, or, like, really force anyone, but it wasn't, it was like a sexual harassment, let's just say that, as far as I know. And then people are like, they cancel, which means they're like, anything, your art or your voice right now is irrelevant. You have to pay your dues. It could be one year to 10 years or forever. And, you know, we're going to burn your CDs. We're going to all like deals, whether it's with sponsors or networks are all canceled. And all of society is kind of endorsing this movement, this way of saying, it's almost like because what you did was wrong, everything else you do is no longer valid. And now you have MLK who, I mean, let's talk about what that would look like in today's culture. First of all, every city in America has a street named Martin Luther King. I mean, he has the, what is it? The only non-presidential monument in D.C. that's dedicated to a person.
1: Uh, I mean, I'm just making I, shit up. I don't actually maybe. know that,
0: but it seems true to me because you have like, what, Lincoln, Jefferson, Washington, mm-hmm. and then you have this whole Martin Luther King memorial that we've seen. Um, it, it I, I read here, look, it says um, "The I Have a Dream speech would be among several to fe- be featured on the back of the American banknotes from 2020, so there's going to be I think there's going to the speech or parts of the, his speech that he wrote are going to be on.
1: Which actually a, bill. a woman wrote it and gave it to him. but oh, I
0: don't know <laughs> So now what do we do? Blow up the fucking statue in D.C. and rename it after someone else that whose stuff we don't know about and change all the street names and say that what he did was like irrelevant now. I mean, that's – so I found this thing, and this is my friend, uh, my Facebook friend. His name is Hugo Schweizer. He's in L.A., and he posted this article, uh, and that's where I found it, and it was May 27th. But um, Okay, so his fourth point says, if the long-whispered truths about MLK are accepted, this might be the long-awaited moment for a reassessment of cancel culture. The statues surely can't come down. The holiday can't be renamed. Oh, I forgot to mention that holiday. Mm -hmm. If we can start to accept the carisoro... I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means either. Of human nature in ourselves and in our heroes, naming the wrong and embracing the good at the same time, it will be good for all of us. As Thomas Merton, the monk himself, touched by sexual complexity, liked to say, God writes straight with crooked lines. Mm -hmm. So basically what Hugo is saying is maybe this will be the moment when society says, okay, we actually can't cancel people because Martin Luther King, just like every human being on the planet. And you said this in passing, but I think it is really the the whole point that I want to talk about, which I think is actually pretty controversial. Every single human is mixed. Yes. And...
1: And I think it's a problem when you put a human on a pedestal or when you demonize a human. So either either extreme, you're going to – I think you're – actually, I think with either extreme, you're dehumanizing them. <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah. Um, like I don't condone what he did, but I'm also like let's look at that and say that – he was a product of his culture you know like and how they viewed women how the religious establishment viewed women how it still views women I mean let's learn from this and let's not demonize the guy let's we and let's also not idolize him
0: yeah if you're idolizing him I think you have two um, two possible reactions from this one is to be shocked and to be like holy crap, how could this happen? And you almost have to rethink everything. You have to rethink him. You have to rethink what he stood for, his significance, and you have to get your tattoo covered up of his face on your arm. If your um, appreciation of him was based upon this kind of like archetypal or comic book perspective, caricature perspective, that he was this perfect, godly, moral guy, period. Or your second response is to be in denial of that which is what I saw happen with a lot of the Michael Jackson stuff, people yeah. love him so much that the idea of him molesting little kids, people are not willing to face. So they, they're they just not even listening. I mean, the facts are, like, overwhelming at this point. Yeah. Um, so what you're proposing is if we have more of a well-rounded perspective of humanity, and I think ourselves. Yeah. Which is really the most difficult, but probably I think also the best benefit and to say, hey, every person is mixed and we, you and I have some really awesome traits that shine maybe on this podcast or on the blog or with our friends and family or whoever. But there's other sides of us that are just like everyone else. And I don't know, like that's every human
1: Yeah, every human. And I think it.
0: And the bad doesn't cancel the good. And the good doesn't cancel the bad.
1: Well, I think when you have done. When you face. I like to call it the shadow side. And I think I've heard Richard Rohr reference it. When you face your own shadow side, you can then see it in other people and you're not shocked by it. You're like, oh, yeah, there it is. Of course, of course it's there. I mean. I wasn't shocked by his because I think 10 years ago I would have been for sure. I wasn't shocked by it. But I was like, it was just another reminder of like, oh, yeah, yeah. he was a human.
0: <laughs> I felt like this with Lance Armstrong. I felt like this with half the mega church pastors in America where it's, it's this fascinating thing that happens because we as a culture build people up to be heroes. Lance Armstrong was like fucking Hercules. You we know? want
1: heroes and we want scapegoats. Yeah, we, we put, want him,
0: we put yeah. him on our T-shirts and we wear his little yellow bands and we put him on our tennis shoes. And then we get so pissed when we find out he was doing the thing that he needed to do to be our hero, <laughs> which is dope the hell up for every race that he did or whatever it was. I don't even, you know, I don't know. I don't care. But, but people were so shocked and angry. And I'm like, we made him that. You know, like he never was that person that we thought he was. So if we're shocked, I think we could blame him. We could sit around and be like, Lance Armstrong is such a da da which you know what is probably true also. Like I don't want to justify what they're doing, but if you are shocked you were living in some sort of denial or um, you know, you were covering your eyes from reality. Also And I guess I'm just, how many times does this have to happen before we're not shocked anymore?
1: Well, yeah. I think you're always going to be shocked if you haven't done, seen your own side of, of shadowness.
0: So unfortunately, because of what you just said, I actually completely disagree with Hugo. Not that he is coming out strong and saying that now cancel culture is going to be reassessed. I don't think it's going to be reassessed. I think this MLK thing is either going to be swept under the rug and people are going to be like, well, he's dead. Which is kind of like what happened to the Michael Jackson thing. I'm so I'm still shocked how little press and attention that has gotten in popular media. Oh, yeah. I don't know why. I don't know if it's because he's black. I don't know if it's because he's dead. I don't know if it's because he was so good at music that people... But like... You know, the media is so unforgiving to some people mm-hmm. and others.
1: Well, it, I don't get it. It probably has something to do with if the media, the companies that run the media, if they have something to lose by. You think so? I, I I'm guessing.
0: Like what I, money? I don't know. I don't know either.
1: Or I, or maybe just yeah. May yeah. Actually, I don't know. I don't know.
0: So, unfortunately, I am i don't know how this is going to be resolved for, like, the public. Like, you know, and this, this happens, like, kind of all over the place, like, on a much broader scale with our everyday life. Like, I know in Florida, they're taking down all those statues of, what is it, Robert E. Lee or something like that. And I'm fine with that. Once again, I don't care if those statues are there. But... I feel like it's wrong to either turn people into heroes or turn people into villains. And if you turn people, if you're looking for heroes, you're going to have villains. And life is always going to be split up into those two types of people. <clears throat> and if but, you're a hero yeah. to someone, just know you're one and a half steps away from being a villain. Like when there, you might not change at all. Like MLK didn't change. He's been fucking dead for how long? But the perception about him changed. Like we got more truth and now we hate him. And that's going to be the nature of that type of di- dichotomistic, binary, whatever you want to call it, like mm-hmm. dualistic way of viewing people. If you view people as just good or bad,
1: mm-hmm.
0: good, good and bad are roles and stories, but they do not encompass a full human being.
1: We make a t-shirt that says we all have a hero and a villain inside of us. <laughs> i think it's
0: true would you wear that
1: uh no me neither but okay maybe not a t-shirt but i think that's true yes (laughs) yeah maybe a mug
0: we'll make a podcast and say that how's that (laughs) would you drink out of that mug
1: i don't know maybe yeah yeah i probably drink out of a mug all right that's less i don't have to wear it around all
0: right well let's still work on better ideas for Mm -hmm. mugs i think maybe
1: but you know what this does for me? Hmm. This doesn't really make me angry at him as much as it just makes me angry at the culture that created his uh, indifference towards women. Like with the rape thing. I, the affair thing, I don't know. Like that to me is a lot grayer or I more get it or something. But the rape thing, I'm just like, for you to laugh at that, you must not have seen that that woman was just as important, just as valuable and had just as much of a voice as the man that was raping her. And that makes, pisses me off.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, he's dead. Um,
1: No, I know. I'm just saying, but that culture is still alive today.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, To compound this To take this one step further One thing I've seen Is that oftentimes, The very blind spots That we hate people for Is what makes them Capable To have the strengths And be the heroes That we celebrate them For being So I don't know How this ties together But this dude Was a machine I mean he was working He was Meeting all over the place People Like this report said He was like Hardly ever at home Or with his wife and kids You know and no one thinks about that when we're thinking about how much he did and his awesome speeches and, you know, all the cool protests he did. We're not thinking about his wife and kids back home. Like, no one cares. Now all of a sudden people care. But that work ethic and that drive and that kind of, like, fuck the world mentality was one of the things that we liked about him.
3: Hmm.
0: So it, I, I just think it's tricky. And what I what I hope for myself and for others is that we can say, Man, those things that I appreciate about him, I still appreciate about him. I think he was a badass, and I think those actions were heroic. And these other actions he did were villainous. The actions were. But that doesn't make him just a hero or just a villain. And same thing with myself. You know, I have actions that I think are heroic, and I think everyone does. And we have actions that are, Vil, you know, villainous. I don't know what the like word I is. Like I
1: said, we each have a hero and a villain inside of us.
0: I totally agree with <laughs> it. I don't want to wear it on a t-shirt. <laughs> mm, okay.
1: We'll make a sticker.
0: Are we ready for the last um, article? Yep. Okay, this uh, this article really blew me away. Okay, so This is from Vice. And the headline is, The Disturbing Thing I Learned Studying White Privilege and Liberals so this woman i found out this week that i'm not supposed to use the word chick or lady for some of our female listeners they don't like that
1: i don't like chick i guess lady yeah that's interesting lady i don't know we don't say "gentleman." (laughs) that would be the equivalent
0: so anyways this chick is a white (laughs) what
1: (laughs) What the fuck man
0: it's just the easiest thing to say at least
1: don't say it because i don't want to hear it
0: okay what would you like me to say
1: you know what's funny is i'm okay with women calling other women chicks but i'm (laughs) not exactly okay Okay, that's
0: discrimination
1: sure but you've earned it because you are one you're a chick
0: just like earned it you haven't earned anything no just like that's female privilege okay so uh
1: just say woman okay but then that only really leaves you with women, doesn't it?
0: I can't. can't I can't do this for you. I'm not here for you. I'm here for myself and for God.
1: You just said you heard that maybe it would be better for some I listeners. My mind. Okay.
0: That was... Uh, that,
1: that chair fun is just going to be for me now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thanks, okay. everyone.
0: So this chick, she's a white college professor who studies racism and is about to marry a white man who grew up poor. So she she identifies as being liberal, female, college professor. And this guy, this white dude... See, I can call him a dude. I mean, that's not... I say chicken dude. It's just like so much easier.
1: I I get that, but... If chi- you're
0: offended by that, I'm really sorry. Because I, I have no disrespect towards women yeah. or men. Yeah. I don't think. Any additional.
1: I... I know. I
0: disrespect all people equally. Oh, But really, I respect them. (laughs) Um, Okay, so she's writing, and she says that she's going to marry this dude, and she says he was poor, but I couldn't stop myself from mentioning that white male poverty wasn't exactly the worst injustice out there. So he's poor, but she's like, oh, boo-hoo. You're a white guy.
1: But you can do that with anyone, right? You can say... Of course you
0: can. But but the whole point of this article is is saying that because you're white it's like
1: no one wants to hear we're your not gonna cry for sob you stories. yes because you
0: have it easy okay and she said she has plenty of evidence on her side because she's a professor who studied racism and she knows how hard black people have it basically okay so when you spend all day focusing on how hard black people have it then a white dude comes along and you're like boo freaking who like look at these you, people that have it way Yeah, worse. you have this perspective okay so that's some of the context so this is like a personal person from this article so um it says, recent polls suggest that liberals perceive racism to be a bigger problem than conservatives. Okay, so no no big... Surprise. Um, yeah, nothing blows your mind with that, that liberals are more concerned about racism and conservatives are like, racism, what? Like, it's not a big deal. So what happened was they did a study at uh, University of Kentucky and NYU, which is University right down of Kentucky, the road, Right down the road. To examine the effects of white privilege lessons on sympathy for white people. Okay, so they're trying to figure out if you believe in white privilege, which is that black people have it worse, then how does this change how you view white people, I guess? So here's the results from the study. As we expected, liberals who learned... Oh, so the way they did this... I don't even want to get into it because it's too complicated, but they did this study. It seems like it makes sense to me, but... As we expected, liberals who learned about white privilege expressed more sympathy towards this random male who they named Kevin when he was described as black versus white. So they're, like, learning about white privilege. And, and they're then,
1: white? Or are these predominantly white people?
0: Yeah, I okay. think so. Yes. Okay. 650 liberals. But people that identify as being liberal. And a majority were white. So I yeah. guess it's also black people. Okay. But who is really studying is liberals.
1: Hmm.
0: So when the um dang this is confusing um so when they found out this Kevin guy was black they had more sympathy about him. In contrast, conservatives expressed relatively low levels of sympathy for the poor regardless of race. So <laughs> conservatives were just like well, oh, fuck them either consistent. way. <laughs> yeah, they're consistent. But the liberals were more likely to express sympathy if he was black because of, well, they all had just had this lesson on white privilege when taking this test. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Okay. However, what we found startling was that white privilege lessons didn't increase liberal sympathy for poor black people. Instead, these lessons decreased liberal sympathy for poor white people. Oh. <laughs> Which led them to blame white people more for their own poverty. Oh no. It, um, they seem to think that if a person <clears throat> is poor, despite all the privileges of being white, there must be something wrong with them. So, mm. so instead of taking this lesson and saying, oh. "Oh, like black people have it hard," they kind of like almost switched it, where they were like. You white people get over yourself And they actually had no more sympathy for the black so people So instead of
1: just saying Okay you poor white people Have it hard but you don't have it as hard As these poor black people They say They just completely just disc- Not only do they discount it that they have it hard The white people, the poor white people But they say it's your damn fault
0: Yeah it almost <laughs> led to like a demonization Of the oh man Race that had it easier Sheesh so it, in a way, it's, like, not really more compassionate. Um, or it doesn't, it doesn't produce more
1: compassionate people if you're no. only compassionate for a certain group of people.
0: It's not true compassion.
1: Yeah, no, it's not.
0: Um, so I'm going to read this. However, these widespread assumptions that black equals poor and white equals wealthy also mean that poor white people are vo- violating stereotypes of their race. So if you, what it's saying is if you have these stereotypes that black people, you know, that white privilege exists, let's um, if you take that as a supposition in life and then you say, okay, that means black people are more likely to be poor <coughs> because they're more disenfranchised. And also that white people are more likely to be rich. Then when you come across a white person, that's not rich. You tend to have very little compassion for them because you have a stereotype in your mind. So it sounds good to have, you know. That's what's so weird about the stereotypes about um, um, what's what's what are we talking about? The what's the term called for what this is the um, the privilege, you know that that black people are victims of white privilege, and I don't actually disagree with that. I think Mm. to hear those stories of. Mm ways that they've been impacted, um, it, you know, it's, it raises my awareness. Yeah. But then you take it to the next level and you say, oh, black people have, are victims. And then you're like, white people aren't. That's kind of the logical mm. duality where people tend to go with that. Yeah. Um, which may present its own complexities on how white people feel subjectively and how they are treated when they are poor. So then this article says, I think the crucial question then is how we can help people recognize the real barriers that black Americans face without becoming numb to the problems that other groups have to deal with. Mm. So it was so fascinating because these people then they, they kind of became sympathetic, quote unquote, to
1: well, It's black kind of people. a mob mentality, too, where you, you, just, you get on this bandwagon of, you know, down with the white people. Whether you're poor or not, instead of just trying to be more compassionate to the the poor black people, just in general. But then, yeah, it, it, I can see how like it's it's cool to like hate on them, you know? <laughs> you or and it's cool. It's really not cool to not hate. Well, on and them.
0: I don't think people realize they're doing this. And I have, I have my own story with this where. It hasn't happened much, but I posted this Facebook update. It's my my usual every four years. I say, hey, by the way, I'm not voting. And I have, like, deep reasons. Actually, you know who impacted it a lot was uh, MLK. And a lot of the stuff that I read in high school kind of indicated that I wanted to put the majority of my energy for social change outside of politics. Um which I just think is more effective. I was going to say because that's what Jesus did. And I think that's not the main motivation I have, but I also want to point out that that was a role model to me at that time in a huge way. You know, he didn't try and change the laws, but he accepted the laws and died. And then in dying proved his point, at least according to the story. So um, religion aside... That's why we put so much energy into this podcast and to our vlogs and all these things. But when I posted this Facebook update that said, I'm not voting, some woman in the Cincinnati area said, sounds like white privilege. And I was like, fuck you. (laughs) You know, I mean, first of all, my mom is Korean. She showed up in America not knowing how to speak English and went to school having to translate every single fucking word off the page in order to even do her homework at night. So if it's white privilege, it's only half white privilege, first of all. (laughs) So get your facts straight. Second of all, what it really was doing, it wasn't really raising up black people. It crossed the line and it discounted and assumed my motive. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, I'm just lazy, so I don't care about social change or I have it made. So I don't, you know, I just don't think that the energy is worth it at the voting booth or the voting polls. But I'm going to spend energy as much as anyone, I think trying to push for the hope and love and goodness that I want to see in the world. Mm -hmm. So that was, that was like just one experience where I felt like, Oh, because I'm white, I can't like, if I was black and I said, I'm not voting, I still think you'd be crucified, but they'd probably use a different, they'd probably discount it for a different way, I guess.
1: Yeah. Hmm. So would you call that racist?
0: Yeah, actually. Because
1: like, I, I, I can see the same thing happening with sexism,
0: mm-hmm.
1: where guys, especially white guys, so they have a double whammy, right? Um, but if guys are sharing their feelings about something, it's just not heard as much as if women are. and. Yeah, well, I, I feel I, like history kind of I guess there's just like this huge backlash probably of like for for women, how they've been treated. And then and then also for black people and how they've been treated. And so in order to balance the skills or something, you have to be like you have to hate on these certain groups of people.
0: Yeah, we end up we call it compassion, but we end up lashing out at the other. And that's not the solution. No, I mean th- this is where. So I shared with you this story this week about, you know, just this realization I had where, when I, we got married, Cami's family was kind of giving me shit because I cared about, um, like De- I,
1: decor, decor in
0: the house and how our house was designed, and we were kind of being pressured a bit. I thought I felt like it, to be told, "Hey, this isn't a man's job. Like, this is the woman's job is to pick the stroller out." And to decide what's decorated at home. And I didn't have words for it at the time, but it was like, oh, like, so if I really care about how the house is decorated, I don't have a say because I'm a man. But because men have more power historically, you know, I can't claim to be the victim in that situation, or I can't, but, and I don't think I'm a victim like in the big picture, but I do think that is just as much discrimination and just as much a discounting.
1: you're just reversing it. Yes,
0: which which That's is the same is. basis that leads to oppression. So yeah. it's, it's just not the answer. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to read this thing that um, I actually read this week uh, that really spoke to me in this area. And this book is called The Divine Magician by this guy named Peter Rollins. let me just read the back. Widely sought-after writer, lecturer, storyteller. He's like theologian, philosopher, dude, from Belfast. What is that, Ireland? Mm -hmm. Um, I always get those confused. 45, 46. Um, And I'm really liking this book, although it's freaking complicated, so I don't know if I'd recommend it yet, but his lectures have been amazing to me. Okay, so he's saying... This is why the liberal strategy of opening up communities to previously scapegoated others is not in itself sufficient. So liberals now are more likely to say something like, hey, let's include gays in church or women in this activity or minorities in here. And he's saying to just open up communities to another layer of people is not actually sufficient. In religious terms, some churches are beginning to open up to the idea that gays and lesbians can be equal members of their community, just as many churches eventually learned to reject explicit racism and sexism. Now they are gradually learning to overcome other systems of exclusion. But the problem is that the fundamental structure of scapegoating is not broken in the acceptance of the latest other. Yeah. If the underlying scapegoat mechanism, and the scapegoat mechanism is like blaming a whole group of people other than yourself for your problem. It's not just one person um, in the way he's talking about scapegoating, because this whole book is kind of, or this whole section is actually about this whole philosophy of scapegoating. Um, If the underlying scapegoating mechanism is not decommissioned, then new others will always arise to protect the group from its own internal conflicts. For example, people who are gay or lesbian are often being welcomed into the church as long as they seek to embrace the type of relationship configuration endorsed by the church. Instead of being open to different understandings of sexual relationships that might be learned from minority communities who have existed outside the dominant system, these minorities must conform. This is similar to the idea of a church that welcomes someone who is gay as long as he remains celibate. Only now he has a second choice, monogamous marriage for life. So this is a solution. In order, I should have skipped the whole last paragraph, but in order to destroy the scapegoat mechanism, a different strategy must be adopted. Instead of trying to create a community where there is no outsider, the real answer lies in understanding that there is a sense in which we are all outsiders. In concrete terms, this means that a community faces its own lack rather than ignoring it and thus creating a scapegoat who must carry it. So, I mean, this is like deep shit and this is like way beyond like something we can get into. But what he's saying is it sounds so sexy to be able to say, oh, let's embrace black people this month or this year and really focus on like, uh, white privilege and how black people are victims. And then, you know, this kind of flavor of the month. And I don't want to discount there. There is a truth to that like, there's a truth there that is important, but it's just not the best big picture or long-term solution, because what you're going to do then is, as evidenced in this other article, you're essentially creating another crowd of you know, the compassion goes here, but then it comes from there. It's like hitting the moles that keep on popping up. Right. And, And next week, if you're trying to still find a solution to your problem, you know, just like with what happened with Hitler and the Jews you know they were like hey they're the problem to our problems we're always still going to find other people to blame maybe it's the Louis C.K.'s or the Martin Luther King's or the Michael Jackson's this week or the Lance Armstrong's or the white people or the this or the that and the real solution though is to realize that the problem is inside of us just as much as it's on the outside yeah, and when you can identify with that, you're going to stop looking outside to blame anyone at all.
1: Mm-hmm. I think there is a transformation that takes place inside of a human being that is able to see themselves in another person, regardless of anything. Just that they're another person. <laughs> like, I don't doesn't matter what sex they are, what race they are what economic status they have, what country they come from. If you can see yourself in that person, you're not going to scapegoat them.
0: Yeah. So this isn't just about including people into the system. It's actually about reformatting the system that we operate by. Yeah. All right. Wow. Those were heavy news articles, I think. Um, okay, it is time for the phone lines.
3: Hi, host Ben and co-host Cammie. Um, I just listened to your episode, oh, my name's Margaret and I'm from Pennsylvania. Um, so I just listened to your episode about porn and the shame thing can be really hard because I grew up Catholic, or at least going to a Catholic church with my family where a bunch of Irish Catholics, and... In my area is super Christian. I live around, like, Lancaster, Amish County, Pennsylvania. And I, of course, I was raised Catholic, but so that means I'm not Catholic anymore. I would consider myself agnostic. I just don't have any religious beliefs. But I still find the guilt, the Catholic guilt here, like, follows me through life. And I really struggle with it, and it goes across more than just sex. It's food. It's um, just revealing, like, flaws to yourself. Um, And, like, for example, I was thinking about, like, the masturbation guilt. And especially as when I was younger, girls would say they didn't know what masturbation was or that they've never done it or say it's gross. And I am 25, and I still, like, I had a boyfriend for three years and felt like I couldn't tell him that I masturbated or it was, like, this weird guilt that I couldn't. I can't, still can't really form my mind around because I, I, I'm able to apply these beliefs to other people and say, like, oh, it's fine if they do things but I still really struggle when it comes to myself. And I don't know if I'm really, I'm not really asking a question. It's just four of my thoughts right on that episode because it's the thing with food. Like, I can say, yeah, you know, drinking alcohol often is really bad, but then if, like, I want to have a, whatever, I'm rambling, but... That guilt and shame, is really pervasive, and um, I don't know if it's just, because even I'm not religious, and it still sticks with me, it's like a culture thing of not wanting to reveal flaws, but thank you so much for the podcast, and I really enjoy listening to it, and I love, especially listening to it when I'm driving, which is what I'm doing now, um, and I hope all is well.
1: Thank you, Margaret, for that.
0: Man, sure. did we listen to this message already, or did we no. listen to another one that was just? I feel like I don't
1: think we've listened to hers. Wow. Um, gosh, yeah, shame is a son of a bitch. But, yeah, she didn't really have a. I mean, I can really relate to a lot of what she was saying. Where it's just like, for for years, I would just have this feeling of around my own sexuality. I just have this feeling of of oh like dirty I don't want to go there it's I didn't accept it in myself and it wasn't until that belief changed and I can't tell you a step by step this is how that happened but I I think I opened myself up to eventually just to Experiences that helped me see that whatever I was believing about my sexuality wasn't true. Um, that my sexuality isn't gross. It's beautiful. Like, And she said that she's able to see that in other people, but she can't see it in herself. And it, I think it's this rewriting that story for yourself.
0: This goes so far beyond cognitive awareness oh, yeah. or assessment or assertions. So you you can say, I believe my body is beautiful.
1: Yeah. But, but shame is something you actually experience in your body. Like you can feel it in your body. So, and I think if you were shamed, not maybe on purpose, but, or maybe on purpose, but you were shamed, you're, your sexuality was shamed as, as you were growing up, or you heard these messages and you, you know, absorbed them into yourself. I think it does take a, a while, I think, to completely reprogram that for yourself to where you aren't experiencing shame anymore.
0: Well, she says it goes way beyond sexuality. We're talking food. Yeah.
1: Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, and that's food.
0: Like your body. Your body's not even sexuality. Part of your body is sexuality. Right. But this, this can go. I can relate to this so much. I think I always felt like I was gonna be busted because whatever decision I was making wasn't the one hundred percent most right decision. This wasn't starting businesses. This isn't buying a pair of jeans. I felt guilty for almost everything I bought, a lot of what I ate, a lot of what I thought, and a lot of what I wanted to do sexually. So it's really, you know, I think sexuality is the canary in the coal mine. Like it's the most blatant and obvious, but you know, it, I don't think it stops there. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, I guess she wasn't asking any questions which is good because I don't think I have any I mean,
1: I think it's a big step just recognizing it. I know this isn't going to be super helpful to hear probably, but I mean, I think... How do you know that? Well, maybe because I want to give her something more. but, But no, I'll just reiterate without the disclaimer. I think it is a huge step to recognize shame in yourself and to say, oh... I feel shame around my sexuality. I feel shame around food or whatever it is, because then at that point you're shining a light on it, and then at least it's it's like not able to hide. Which I think, if you're not aware of your shame, it you have way less of a chance of actually shattering the shame.
4: I've been in Candy. This is Frank again. From um, the North Coast, uh, there's so much like, in the middle of this podcast here, and um, I, you know, I just started with a lot of things. I mean, I love your your programs, your videos, and all that kind of stuff. And I can comment on everything you say, good or bad, whatever. But I don't. Okay, but there's one thing you said today that I just can't let you get away with. At least the way I see it when you said that humans are uniquely different or qualified or not qualified, but capable of grouping together from any other thing on this planet. You really didn't mean to say that, did you? Because first of all, animals are all about Haunting in groups. Ants, if they don't work together, I don't know what does. Bees. Birds. Have you ever seen them, billions of birds, flying through the sky and not knocking each other out? I think just about everything needs to work together. Even snakes. Unless we're dealing with talking snakes, and then that's a whole other issue okay i'm going to let this go and i won't mention what would jesus do as far as asking for a chair jesus would never settle for new chairs Okay, thanks guys well love you guys
1: well Uh, thanks for your honesty frank i don't know how would you know if jesus I can't tell if he joking
0: at the end or not. I heard this, and I was like, this is so funny to me. But he was so passionate that I was like, I think, I don't even know what I said. I can imagine what I said.
1: Yeah, I don't know either. I, I agree with him in that he's absolutely right. Animals, insects, other species on this planet, they do need each other, and they group together, and um and I guess humans are unique in maybe how we do that but we're not unique in that we do that I don't know
0: anyways (laughs) I still think there's something unique about why humans are doing what they're doing um yeah but but I agree that togetherness is not just a human mm-hmm. concept.
1: So is it safe to say uh we're not gonna get any chair money from Frank?
0: <laughs> I don't know.
1: Was he joking?
0: I don't know. <laughs> what would Jesus do? Who the fuck knows what Jesus would do about chairs? Jesus would <laughs> make himself five thousand chairs using magic.
1: Magic. <laughs> I don't know.
0: Well, he was a carpenter. He'd turn
1: he would turned these chairs into awesome chairs.
0: <laughs> would GSB podcast in there? Right. Anyways, last question.
2: Hi, this is AJ. I am from Atlanta and I was calling to, um, let Cammie know that I empathize with her struggle with purity culture. Um, I was very much raised under that umbrella in the nineties and, um, it did definitely have lasting effects that are still impacting my marriage and my personal life today. Um, But what I mostly wanted to tell you was kind of what I consider to be a funny story, um, which is the talk, quote unquote, that I received from my mother. Um, This started around age 13 and it was recited pretty much every single day of my life until I left the house. Um, it was something like this, Angela, what do all boys want? And of course, my smart ass response was to get in my pants. And then she would say sternly, and what is your job? And my response was to not let them. And this is funny, I can laugh about it now, but that's really all the sex education that I got from my parents. Um. And it really had an impact on my relationships uh, with males, even friendships, because it told me in no uncertain terms that boys were not interested in a friendship, they were only interested in one thing, and everything else was a lie. And so, um, you know, that created a lot of distrust and suspicion and paranoia, and, uh, you know, it prevented me from having any sort of normal relationships Um, and as a result i never had a boyfriend until i was 24 years old and he's the one who got through and he's the one that i married which so you know it's a happy ending to the story but i never made it i was never able to make any sort of emotional or physical connection with anybody else um, you know until i was well into adulthood so that's um, my story. Thanks for listening. Bye.
4: Oh. Holy fuck!
1: Thanks, AJ, for sharing that. Wow. Dang.
0: I, I don't know what part of that is funny. It's not funny to me. It's not funny to me either. I'm trying to think if I like was around it like my whole life if. I guess there's, a, you kind of maybe have to laugh at it just to make sense of it or.
1: And to put that on her as her job too, like, yeah, there's so many things about that that I'm just like, oh, um, wow.
0: Well, so I mean, what I heard, um, you know, she shared that um, this made relationships difficult. But to me, the other reading between the lines message that this sends is that sex is a weapon, primarily. Mm. I mean, men want to get in your pants. Your job is to stop it. So it's like, what are knives for? Knives are for stabbing me. Don't let anyone stab me with a knife. So then you never use a knife to like cut a steak or put butter on bread because you're like, knives are to stab. Mm. And sex, like...
1: So now... it would so, if you use that knife analogy, but then switch it to your own sexuality, when do you are you able to use your sexuality for yourself?
0: Or what if you want to get in a man's pants? Yeah, you know I mean, right? Because you enjoy it or whatever, like it. Sex is being equated to violation, mm. which I think it's you're an idiot to. To not acknowledge the violation aspect that can be present with sex of course but it seems like a shame to man yeah limit it to that i can i can imagine how difficult that would have been to you know and what you worked through to even get to the point where you could have a relationship at the age of 24. wow mm-hmm. that's a um i don't have much positive to say about that
1: I I can relate some to that not because I had to re- had that recited but to me but I I think I had that mentality instilled in me in one way or another and a lot of what that produced in me was fear of my sexuality fear of myself distrust of myself fear of other people and I do think that makes it really difficult then to have relationships with uh, especially people like guys, but, or even like a healthy sexual relationship with yourself.
0: Yeah, what's the worst, what are hands for? They're for touching yourself, don't touch yourself. Right. I mean, that's the same line, like, where was it? Was it in that uh, Nadia Boltz Weber book or whatever where the mom would come in every night and smell the daughter's hands? To make sure she wasn't masturbating. That's
1: right, yeah, I remember.
0: And, like, you know, therefore sending this message that, like, your genitals are basically bad and pleasure is bad and masturbation is obviously, therefore, bad. And it's like, wow. I mean, to me, there's a lot of overlap, actually, between this and that first phone call where there was all that shame.
1: Mm.
0: And I can... There's a bigger picture here that I really, maybe we just need to get into with telling more of our faith journey story. Because as even a dad with having daughters, I, I thought, okay, you know, guys are out there to get chicks. My daughters are chicks. They're just walking targets, floating, sitting ducks. Like I got to train them. Not
1: sitting ducks, sitting chicks. Oh. oh, I had to use that because you use that word again.
0: Where's the um? Somewhere around here, we have this. <laughs> um, there's well, basically in my head, like because of all the shame mentality and basically screwing up was the worst thing that you could do and pissing God off. Any type of sexual deviation, what we taught thought, were taught was outside of God's plan was the ultimate of pissing God off. And therefore, like not protecting our daughters or having them be these like pure beacons of virginal hope was one of the worst things we could do. So therefore, as parents, there was a ton of pressure to protect our kids. So I could see this from the moms perspective. If you think, okay, your daughter's virginity and purity is like the ultimate like spiritual goodness in the world and everyone's after it. Holy crap, parenting is scary. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to like spend your job trying to protect this thing because prevent it from worst case scenario. And parenting was really hard work for me in that time period. Hmm. And I thought, well, that's my job. I'm a dad. So I kind of like embraced it. But now that I have a different mentality about it, I'm much more likely, I think my daughters especially are much more likely to stand up for themselves. Like they know what consent is. They know, I think, what their voice is and their voice is important. It's not just like a dude's going to shove his hand down their pants and they're going to be like, oh crap, I don't like this, but I don't know how to stop. Um, But also, it doesn't have to come at the cost of sex being, sex doesn't have to be unique in that way. We teach our kids, hey, if someone wants you to go to a movie and you don't want to go, say you don't want to go. But it's not like, all guys are going to try and get you to go to movies without asking which movie you want to see. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or get you to go to the, their favorite restaurant and not ask yours. Like, you know, movies aren't that big of a deal, and food's not that big of a deal, and either is sex in a way. Like, it doesn't need to be larger than life.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, wow.
1: Mm, covered a lot.
0: Yeah, let's end it on that No, which is just What's in it on what would Jesus do with this chairs. <laughs> um, okay, so that was a heavy day, but um, I hope it was helpful for some of you guys. Um, I'm in this crisis right now where I'm trying to figure out what's best for this podcast with long episodes or short episodes. Basically, if we do comments, news, phone, and a topic, I think we're looking at, we're at an hour and 20 minutes right now. Here's my question for you. Would you rather have 45 minutes of just like shorter topics um, and shorter episodes or would you rather have these longer episodes? So could you guys um, leave a comment on the YouTube video? Is that possible? The link is below, like all these are on all the podcast platforms and they're on the YouTube videos. If you can't leave a comment on the YouTube video, you can send a text to the phone number I'm going to give you, which is the same number that we want you to record a voicemail for questions. But if you're leaving a question, please record the voice because we want to hear your voice and it works better. We're not going to do the questions over text. But in this one time, I will allow it (laughs) (laughs) where you can say longer or shorter. And I I really want to hear that because I kind of want it to be shorter. Um, And the phone number you can do that 206-651-651 five, seven, four, four. Okay. The podcast is available on iTunes and Spotify and all the places and YouTube. If you want to watch the video, thank you guys for supporting, um, us through, I guess, liking or subscribing or the, the chair fund or leaving questions or feedback on the YouTube comments. Those are all ways you can support us if you choose to do that. We enjoyed talking through these deep things that I don't really feel like we hear talked about in many other places. So kudos to you guys for being open to at least considering some of these thoughts. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Fight For Together. We'll see you next time.